you'd like to read along with me this morning, we'll be in Philippians chapter 1. I'll give you a second to find it. It's Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 11. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of making, uh, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy. For your fellowship is in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as in, just as it is right for me to think of you. All because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Jesus Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness by which, excuse me, by being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, it's good to see each of you this morning. Glad we can come together, spend time with each other, and worship God side by side. As we read through the New Testament, we read letters such as the one that Chase just read for us, or a portion of it, the Philippian letter. We come to understanding pretty quickly that the Apostle Paul wrote approximately half of the books, or half of the letters, that are in the New Testament. He wrote at least 13 of the 27. He signed his name to those. And perhaps he wrote the letter to the uh, Hebrew Christians, the letter to the Hebrews. And in many of those letters, such as the ones uh, to Corinth, or the one that the church in Galatia received, there are clear rebukes found within those letters and corrections which targeted the sins found in that congregation or in those congregations. Now, all of Paul's letters contained words of encouragement, words of love, but the letter written to the church in Philippi was completely different. As we read that letter, we come across statements made like the one just read for us, But we do not find the words of rebuke like we do in the Corinthian letter. We do not look and read and find uh, measures of correction that were directed to the church in Galatia. We see none of that. In fact, I believe that the letter to the Philippian brethren is the only one wherein Paul did not rebuke in some way or encourage in some way to overcome a problem that existed. But what we read are some heartfelt words of encouragement and praise and love from the apostle to that group of people. 
Now we see a church who stood with Paul in prayer. We see a church who stood with Paul financially. We see a congregation of the Lord's people who stood with Paul in fellowship. When all these other congregations at one time or another seemed to fail Paul in his time of need. He made the statement to the Philippian brethren, You helped me when other congregations of the Lord did not help me. And so he had a very special relationship and bond to these people. As he began his letter, he uses a word, or used a word in verse number 5, that I think explains exactly the reason for that partnership and how it came to be, and why he was so thankful for the congregation in Philippi. Listen again, beginning with verse number 3. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He made requests on their behalf. He was joyful in thinking about them. Why? For your fellowship in the gospel the first day until now. Now there's a lot of information in that statement. He was thankful and their partnership was so great because of the wonderful fellowship they shared. The title of the sermon this morning is Thankful for Fellowship. I believe the concept of fellowship has been greatly misunderstood throughout the modern church. Uh, Now we're going to have a meal after services. Commonly call that a fellowship, don't we? We're going to have a fellowship. Well, it is a fellowship. And there's nothing wrong with calling it a fellowship. I hope at least, because that's what I call it. I can, re- I can remember when Blakeland was, was small, it's almost every Sunday she'd, say, or she'd ask, are we going to have a fellowship today? She enjoyed those. Well, we can have a fellowship. And it can be sitting down to a meal together. But you know, fellowship goes beyond sitting over a cup of coffee. It goes beyond sharing time with one another, talking about our favorite sporting event, or being involved in that sporting event. That is fellowship, but it goes beyond that. Genuine fellowship runs much deeper. Notice what he said. He said, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now our word fellowship comes from the Greek word that has several different words that describe it, but generally mean the same things. It means partnership, participation, benefaction, communication, communion, distribution, association, community, a gift jointly contributed, a collection or a contribution. When we contribute to the Lord's treasury, we're in fellowship. We're participating in fellowship. It means to be so closely bound together that there is open and mutual sharing. Right? And we feel that way toward each other, don't we? I don't think any of us would not want to openly 
commune and share with those of like precious faith. Now the opposite is seen in Paul's use of that same word in his second letter to the Corinthians. In that letter, Paul commanded this. Notice 2 Corinthians 6, 14. In that letter, he commanded, But be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? See, the point of his statement is that light and darkness are so mutually exclusive, they have nothing in common. One cannot exist within the other. Period. You can't be more mutually exclusive than light with darkness. They just simply share nothing whatsoever in common, right? Now the apostle takes that understanding and he projects it into the life of the Christian. He believes and understands that believers and non-believers are so different that they're never to be unequally bound together. That doesn't mean we can't be friends with non-believers. That doesn't mean we can't have love and affection for non-believers. We're just not to be unequally bound. Now we have to understand what that means. Now within the context of that meaning, it can't have a thing in the world to do with marriage. Marriage isn't even mentioned within that specific context. Now, in 1 Corinthians seven thirteen, Paul talked about the marriage of a non-believer and a Christian. And he said, if, if they're willing to live together, let them live together. Not sinful to marry a non-Christian. But it's sinful to be unequally bound to a non-Christian. So we have to understand what that means. He intends us to understand that the Christian can never be bound to an unbeliever in any way that would cause that Christian to become unfaithful. We cannot enter into a business with a non-Christian where we would participate in something that is illegal according to God's laws. For instance, I open up a grocery store with a partner, a good friend of mine maybe. He's not a Christian. Well, over the course of time, he decides that there's a lot of money with selling alcohol in the grocery store, and I'm, of course, opposed to that. And so now I'm bound to him, and neither I unbind myself, or I go along with his selling alcohol in the store. Now I'm unequally yoked. We're bound to non-Christians all the time. Have you ever borrowed money for a car, for a house, a student loan? Do you know a vast majority of those people... They're not Christians. So we're yoked to them in some sense. But I can't be unequally yoked where that yoking causes me to be unfaithful to God. If we're able to understand fellowship between Christians, then we can see fellowship for what what it truly is. Fellowship is a great partnership between those of like precious faith, 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Now a lot of us, Come from varying backgrounds, right? We did not all experience the same things in life as we matured from children to adulthood. But we still enjoy a partnership of fellowship. We still enjoy the things that are most important simply because we chose to be followers 
of Christ, and we enjoy fellowship with Him. 1 John 1, 5-10. Now to understand our fellowship better this morning, I think we need to understand the ways in which we have fellowship. If we say, well, a fellowship meal isn't really what fellowship is all about, it's one aspect of it. Or spending time together isn't really what fellowship is all about, it's just one aspect of it. We need to understand what, what constitutes fellowship. We have fellowship in the fact, this is our first point, we have a common origin. We have a common origin. And we, we gain this information from the statements that Paul made. Our origin is based in the fact that those who are Christians are engaged to Christ. When we look at the parable of the ten virgins found in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, we have ten ladies who are waiting for the bridegroom to return. Of course, in the parable, Christ is the bridegroom. The, the, the bride is, is the church. And we're waiting for His return. Okay, We're wait, waiting right now for Christ's return. And so... We have to be engaged to Christ. Now in the culture of the Jews, to be engaged meant to be legally bound to your future spouse. If you entered into an engagement, you were legally bound, and if you wanted to end that engagement, you had to get a letter of divorcement. When we look in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we see where Joseph thought to put away Mary when he found out she was pregnant. He didn't understand at that time that she was pregnant of the Holy Ghost. She was carrying the Son of God. He thought she had been unfaithful. And so not wanting to make a public example out of her, he thought to put her away privately. Now in verse 18, he is referred to as being, the, uh, being espoused to Mary. Okay, they were engaged. But in verse 19, he's called her husband. Now they hadn't legally married yet but they were bound. So we have to be bound to Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. We are the bride. The church is the bride. That's an example used throughout the New Testament. Now, if we're going to be engaged, it goes beyond simply just understanding who Christ is, right? It has to be based on the fact that we give ourselves. We give ourselves. Now, we're using this same example, engagement and marriage, right? Someone says, well, I know who such and such is. That doesn't mean you're engaged to that individual, right? I used to work with a, with a man, and we, we joked with him a little bit. And I don't guess he ever had a girlfriend uh, much. He was an older fellow, but he was always coming in and telling us about some girlfriend he had. And uh, I just listened to him, but he had them all over the place. I'd never seen or met anyone had so many girlfriends. He had a, a, a pharmacist who worked at Kroger, or he had someone that worked here, someone that worked there. He's going to see, well, come to find out, he didn't even know those women personally. Just within his mind, he determined that they were his girlfriend. Now, did that mean he was engaged to those women? Of course not. You have to give yourself. 
And you have to be given, right? We receive and we give. That's what it is to be engaged. We can't just simply say, well, I know who Christ is. I accept the fact that He is the Son of God, but I've got to know Him, right? I have to give myself to Him. That's what that engagement under this context means, right? It can't be based on a simple belief. Joseph knew who Mary was. They had agreed, they had covenanted together, they had made a compact, they had engaged. The origin is not simply based on a belief. Notice what Paul said, Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints. That's not how he ended the description. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Can there be an organization that has saints to that organization that's not the church? They can call them saints. A saint someone who's set apart, that's separate, right? Someone might separate themselves to an organization. The Essenes that lived in the proximity of the Dead Sea had separated themselves from general society. We could call them saints, but they're not saints according to what God said. We have to be saints in Christ Jesus. So, if we're going to be engaged, we have to understand, how do I enter into Christ, right? It can't be just, I believe Christ is who He said He was. Oh, that's a part of it. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, Hebrews 11, verse 6. But we have to understand what that belief and what that faith means. It can't simply mean, I'm sorry for some things I've done in my life, I wish I hadn't done them. We may have even godly sorrow. But that's not the same thing as repentance. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Godly sorrow leads one to repentance. So we have to have more than just a a mental ascent. We have to have more than just, I'm sorry for the sins I've committed in my life. We have to have more. What does that repentance do for us? You know... Someone may even be willing to say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Paul commanded it, Romans 10, 9 and 10. With the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But isn't there more to it? Because he didn't say into salvation, he said unto salvation. So there's got to be something else. If I'm going to be engaged to Christ, I have to enter into Christ. That's our mutual origin. So it has to be something to follow. So that something must be what Jesus talked about in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. It must be that same thing that Peter talked about in 1 Peter 3, 21. The like figure or the similar example talking about the waters of the flood where baptism doth also now save us Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God. That must be what it is. It must be that same thing that Ananias talked a a praying, fasting Saul about. He believed, he called Christ Lord. He said, what do you want me to do? He fasted. Fasting was a demonstration of contritement. It was a demonstration of being penitent. 
So there must have been something else. And that's when Ananias came in, Acts 22, verse 16. He said, Saul, Saul, why tarest thou? Rise and be baptized, washing away thy sins. That's how we enter into the engagement of our mutual origin. That's how we have fellowship, isn't it? It's a common origin that we enjoy with fellow Christians. That's our fellowship, or at least one aspect of it. Well, we have that fellowship because of a common origin, but we have another point, and this is our second point. We fellowship with one another because we have the fellowship of a common obligation. A common obligation. You know, one of our obligations, we have several, but one of our obligations is that we're to pray for one another. Though Paul was in prison, he still had the brethren in his heart, Philippians 1 verse 7. He was in the bonds of Rome. He had chains bound to him. And he prayed for their continual faithfulness and their welfare each time he prayed, for, uh, Philippians 1 verse 4. What an amazing individual. What a fellowship they enjoyed that every single time he prayed to God, he mentioned those brethren. That's amazing to have one's mind so tuned in to a wonderful fellowship that exists between peoples. That's what he had. And that's an obligation we have. Do we love our brethren enough to pray for them? Our fellowship ought to bring us to the very throne of God, beseeching Him on behalf of those we love, those with whom we share a wonderful fellowship. We ought to lift up the names of our brethren all the time to God. Paul did it each time he prayed. Do we approach God when our brethren are hurting? James 5.14 I think most of the time, right? Maybe not every time. We should give God thanks when our, when our brethren have joy in this life. Romans 12 verse 15. Do we thank God when something good happens to our brethren? Well, maybe most of the time, but probably not every time. Our fellowship of obligation should allow us to consider and to think about the wonderful things of our brethren. Have you ever known someone that was, was a good person, even a Christian, faithful in attendance, would really do about anything you asked them to, but they were so nitpicking that nothing seemed to go right. They were satisfied with nothing. We had a there was a brother that I met when I lived in Memphis. He had a nice home. He had the, the brethren were always doing something for him. I don't know that I ever heard the word thank you come out of his mouth. Every time I saw him, he was complaining about something that did not happen right for him. And I told him one time we were sitting in his home. I said, you know, I said, Jack, I enjoy sitting with you. He had a lot of experiences that interested me. I said, but I'm the only one in the congregation that sees this side of you. 
I said, you know what everybody else sees? A grumpy old man that's never satisfied with anything. You're not enjoying a fellowship with your brethren. He said, well, so-and-so never said hi, says hi to me. I said, did you say hi to them? If you want to have friends, what do you have to be? Friendly, right? Most unfriendly individual I ever met in my life. I'm telling you, it was terrible. I told him, I said, you need to straighten up. Our fellowship ought to obligate us to thinking about the good things of our brethren. Right? That doesn't mean we overlook sin. That's not what I'm talking about. But you know, sometimes we have to overlook some things. Right? And but when, we, when we place ourselves in that position to have these good thoughts of our fellow Christians, we need to pray to God for blessings of this life and blessings of an eternal nature for our brethren, 1 Timothy 2.1. See, our fellowship unites us in the obligation of prayer. But it also unites us in the obligation of our partnership. Paul acknowledged his thankfulness to the, for the assistance that the brethren at Philippi gave him. He acknowledged that. They stood with him when he was in need, Philippians 4, 15 through 19, when no one else, as it were, came to his aid. They were his greatest partners in reaching the lost, and they comforted him when he suffered because of his work in the Lord's church. Our partnership simply goes beyond our worship together. Is that a part of our fellowship? Absolutely. A great part of our fellowship. But it goes beyond sitting together and worshiping. It goes beyond sitting together and sharing a meal. That is a wonderful part and a very necessary part of our fellowship. And I'm not downplaying that at all. We need to do it more often. But it goes beyond that, right? It goes beyond simply enjoying our love for one another. It goes beyond that. <clears throat> I know uh, Brother Clay does a lot of work at this building. And it seems as if he ropes me into helping him quite often. But that's okay. You know why? I enjoy the fellowship with him. I enjoy the fellowship. We were preparing some, some bars to put on the, the lower window so we won't have a break-in. You know, Brother Carl took care of that. He, he provided that for us. And, and so, you know, do I want to stand out in the hot sun and in the top of my head get sunburned painting things? I, no, not really. But you know I will because I enjoy the fellowship with these men. I enjoy that fellowship. You know, in fact, on one day we were, the first day we were out there working, Clay decided it's time to take a break, so we came in to get a cup of coffee. And we were going to sit down. And we were going to enjoy a cup of coffee with each other in our mutual fellowship. And our break ended up being checking on the ice maker. I said, Clay, you're the only person I know that takes a break from work and works. I said, are we going to sit down and, and drink a cup of coffee or not? See, I'm always having to push him to stop working. But see, there, there, it goes beyond that though, right? We have a partnership and we need to appreciate what that partnership is, it's the fulfillment of the great commission that Jesus left for us. If we can't come together in fellowship for, for, with that, we're in trouble. 
we have to be able to assist each other in carrying out that partnership. We cannot hinder. You know, I remember at a congregation where I was in the past, we were going to uh, uh, go down. There was an atheist convention in the city. And so there were about 30 of us, National Atheist Convention, Peabody Hotel, downtown Memphis. So about 30 of us, we, we came together, and we were going to go down, and we were handing out tracts talking about how atheism was not correct. Now this individual that I had just spoken about, he said, why are you bothering with that? They're atheists. They don't believe in God. I said, sometimes atheists can come to the knowledge of God. You know, was he assisting us in our effort to fulfill the great... No, he was a hindrance, right? He wasn't in a fellowship of uh, partnership. He wasn't meeting that obligation. Encourage the brethren, right? We need to encourage each other. We read about that throughout the book of Acts and the wonderful partnerships where these brethren encouraged each other. Peter and John, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. It goes on and on. Paul and Timothy, Paul and Titus, Paul and Mark, right? They encouraged each other. You know, in Acts chapter 6, we see a very successful coming together, meeting an obligation, a fellowship of partnership when the Grecian widows were being overlooked. The apostle said, choose seven men. And out of those seven men, that's the first time we meet Stephen, but they came together in a fellowship of partnership, meeting the obligation that needed to be met. They were serving tables, right? They weren't sitting down to a meal. Nothing wrong with that, but it goes beyond that. They were working hard. It's easy to see Paul's great desire to be with the brethren in Philippi. I really find it confusing when people who are supposed to share such a great fellowship do not enjoy each other's fellowship. <laughs> That's odd, isn't it? We see that sometimes with our attendance. There's something missing in the life of one who professes Christ, but doesn't really enjoy going to the worship services of Christ. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Something wrong there. Something is missing. There is a disconnect. Our partnership is strengthened when we spend time together. It helps us get through the difficulties of life. We're encouraged to live a faithful life. We're, we're encouraged to not live in the gutter, we're encouraged not to participate in sinful activity, we're encouraged to be who God wants us to be and who He needs us to be and who the world needs us to be. But it really goes beyond that, right? Our partnership is strengthened. And when we look at our fellowship of origin and our fellowship of obligation, none of that can ever happen. None of that is possible until we understand the fellowship of our common occupation. That's our third and final point. Paul prayed that the Philippians 
would have the proper traits to be successful in their life of living for Christ, in their common occupation. And one of those traits was compassion. We have to have compassion one for another. He wanted their love to grow for each other, for him, for those others around him. You know, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, do you remember what he said Matthew 22, beginning with verse 37? He said, The greatest commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. It is impossible to fulfill the first and great commandment if you cannot fulfill the second one. Not going to happen. Because it's like unto it. It's absolutely necessary. And Paul defined for us exactly what that looks like. Aren't we fortunate? He said, 1 Corinthians 13 beginning with 4, verse 4, he said, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He said, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. The miraculous age came to an end, but guess what never ended? Love. Love. Compassion. One for another. You know, to properly understand compassion or love, we have to understand exactly what it is. Their love had to be according to, verse number 9 of our passage, knowledge and in all judgment. So what does that mean? Well, let's see what David said. Psalm 119, verse 66. David asked God to teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. We're never to confuse compassion for overlooking sin. That's what happened in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They were so puffed up and arrogant, they said, Boy, look at our great love for for our brother over here who's living in sin, who's fornicating with his stepmother. We haven't even said anything to him. That's how much we love him. Paul said, You're fools. We have to never over." look sin but we have to love God more than we love anybody we have to love his word more sometimes showing compassion means that we may even have to rebuke each other we may have to correct each other but we need to do it in love Ephesians 5 4 or uh, excuse me 4 15 understanding though at the same time we're never more like Jesus or God than when we love our brethren never are we more like them Paul had the fellowship of a common occupation in Philippi had compassion with those brethren one aspect is also conviction they had the same occupation of conviction Paul wanted them in verse 10 of our passage to approve things that are excellent make sure you understand Make sure what you're learning is correct. Make sure you check it 
against what God's Word says. They were to test the things they heard. They were to approve those things to make sure that they came from God. That's conviction. We have to stand on our convictions. We have to determine what's from God and what's not from God. Everything that has God's name attached to it is not from God. Everything that has Christ's name attached to it is not from Christ. We have to search that out. John demanded this, John 4 verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Acts 17.11, didn't the Bereans compare what Paul said to what God's Word said? They were trying it, they were searching it out. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica because of that. They had a common occupation, a fellowship of conviction. Once we're able to determine what God expects, and we can, let's determine to stand on those convictions, never giving them up. Paul wanted their common fellowship of occupation to have compassion and to have conviction, but he wanted them to be complete in their fellowship. Notice what his final thought in our passage was. He wanted them to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. That's completeness, isn't it? He wanted them to bear fruit. The only way we can be filled with the fruit of righteousness is to bear fruit. We have to be a part of the vine, right? We should desire to bring that forth. If we exercise the fellowship of God in each other, that will happen. And when that happens, we'll be successful in our occupation. But how can we ensure that? Got to be a way. Notice what Jesus said. He said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. John 15, 5. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If we abide in the vine, we will never struggle to produce fruit. It will happen because of the great fellowship we share in the common occupation. It can't help but happen. I'm satisfied and encouraged that it will. The congregation of the Lord's people in Philippi was a great congregation. It's encouraging when I read that letter. They were great because they shared the fellowship of origin. They shared the fellowship of obligation. And they shared the fellowship of occupation. The church of Christ, called the White Oak Congregation, is a great congregation because we share all of those same things. And as a result, they grew stronger and will grow stronger. I know each of us are truly thankful for the fellowship that we share. But to have that fellowship, you have to be a Christian. You have to have obeyed the gospel. You have to be a part of the vine. You have to be in the family. You have to, you have to enter into the engagement that we talked about. Faith and repentance. Confession. Immersion in water. Faithful living. That will carry us on. We can't get out of the engagement. If we, if we get a letter of divorcement, divorcing ourselves from Christ... We're no longer in Him. That's not what we want. But that happens from time to time. If we become unfaithful, we can always come back. 
John talked about it, 1 John 1. James talked about confessing our faults one to another. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you've fallen from the grace of God, you're no longer faithful. Come back to Him through repentance and confession. Prayer, we'll pray with you and for you. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.